Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today, we're going to talk about a lot of current events, mainly. Um, We think it's a good place to start the show by discussing what's been happening in Congress the last couple days. The what is now being called the American Recovery Project or plan is um, on its way to Joe Biden's desk now. And notably for listeners to this show and anybody who makes the minimum wage in this country, a $15 minimum wage will not be part of that plan. It failed to make it through the Senate after the Senate's parliamentarian ruled it out of bounds. And then eight uh, Democratic senators, um, including most notably Kristen Cinema, who we can get to later, um, voted against including it in the bill. So that is a disappointment and a frustration for left-wing activists who had called for a raise to the minimum wage and expected one from a Biden administration that had made a $15 minimum wage part of its campaign platform. The frustration is definitely there because it doesn't seem to matter who's in power. Nobody has any kind of vested interest in helping um, everyday people. And Mm -hmm. there's so much propaganda out there about what minimum wage is, whether people deserve it, if companies can afford it, that doesn't seem to have any kind of attack from elites. Like they are 100% invested in it. So they have this ability to talk out both sides of the mouth. On the one hand saying, oh yeah, we would love to support it, but it's not my fault it didn't pass. It was this other thing. I, I'm i not surprised it didn't pass. It's extremely disappointing, but I can't say that it's surprising. Yeah, it included in our sort of roundup of how we got here when it comes to the minimum wage. We should also mention that the after the Senate parliamentarian uh, overruled and and said that it was out of bounds to include in the COVID relief bill, um, that there was a mechanism for the Democrats to go ahead and include it anyway. And that's that the vice president can actually use the power vested in them by being the vice president to overrule the parliamentarian who ultimately only makes calls on behalf of the person whose job it actually is to set procedure for that body. Um, The Biden administration made it very clear, even before the parliamentarian issued the ruling, that they would not be doing that, and then confirmed that afterwards, which set the stage for, on Friday, a number of Democratic senators breaking with their party leader's stated platform and voting no, even though, had all of them voted yes, the vote would have failed anyway, as they needed 60 votes to do it using the procedure that, that they were doing at the time. Uh, so it, it literally would not have mattered, and yet they chose to. As Louise said, this isn't surprising at all. We knew that this was something that a lot of donors to both parties are dead set against. 
And uh, unfortunately for all of us, the level of not not just not just propaganda uh, this time around, but the fact is that people have been fighting for a $15 minimum wage since 2012, 2013, when it was a slightly less absurd parody of a livable wage. And even then, even though there were jurisdictions that mandated it, even though there were jurisdictions that raised wages around that time, and then proved to be uh, run completely in counter to the propaganda, they did not, in fact, become wastelands of business where no economic activity happens. Despite that fact, we are still having the same argument seven years later, by which point uh, $15 is not even close to what you need to be able to live on as a worker. And everyone involved knows that. Uh, so, So this was very much a display of the cruelty being the point. Yeah. It's frustrating because, um, and this is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago when I talked to Gene Allen and Mohini about the minimum wage more broadly, is that the power doesn't really come from, in the US, you know, we say we are our democracy, but this big democratic change happened. Democrats took control of the Senate and that wasn't enough. There's additional barriers that either exist or are invented to impede progress even when the right people supposedly are in power. Um, and there's been much made about, you know, the nature of some of the Democrats who voted against this. Joe Manchin is the senator from West Virginia. This is a conservative state. In theory, there might be some pushback in his state against him voting to increase the minimum wage, though I would note minimum wage increases have passed in red states, in Florida and Missouri and Arizona, where Kristen Sinema comes from. But there were also in that eight, both senators from Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, which is one of the bluest states in the country and yet produces incredibly milquetoast politicians. Not sure what that's about. It, it can't possibly have anything to do with the fact that thousands of gigantic American corporations share one uh, mailing address and all of them go to this one P.O. box in Delaware. Well, that would be the simplest explanation, but you know, we all know that things are more nuanced than that, aren't they? Always. And and let's let's be real clear while you're talking about Arizona passing a fifteen dollar minimum wage while one of their senators voted against it. When you say that much was made, right? You're talking about the number of people who said, Well, there these were Democrats who have to vote for it. And Kristen Cinema is the kind of Democrat who can win in Arizona. You know what other Democrat can win in Arizona is Mark Kelly, who is the other senator from Arizona, and voted for the $15 minimum wage. And he's up for re-election sooner than she is. So there's there's sort of an interesting power play here where and pardon me, but you know, I'm usually the moralist on these episodes. And I'm gonna say that it it is what is disheartening, what is to a certain degree surprising, is the level to which people are going out of their way to defend the Democrats who broke ranks and did this after an acrimonious primary where the left was told to shut the hell up and join in and vote because you had to get the Cheeto out of office. And now that that was achieved, immediately as priority after priority that not just the left, but apparently the center of the party was holding dear and intended to enact, every time that they don't, the response, the the explanations, as you were saying, Ryan, become much more complex and much more nuanced when it is incredibly obvious that these people just don't care. 
They don't care about you. They don't care about me because they have people to defend them from us. Yeah, I think that that point about having basically a limitless supply of people who will excuse behavior from from our elected officials and say, well, they had to. You have to understand the circumstances. Uh, you know, is this, that, and the other. Like, there's nothing. There's no mechanism whatsoever to holding these people accountable. And that's one of the reasons why we can't get anything meaningful or useful out of them. Yeah. And when you talk about uh, people sort of going to bat for these politicians to oppose any effort to hold them accountable, I'm struck by and I feel I have to mention our own governor. Andrew Cuomo, who is uh, going through things at the moment. Um, there have been Finally. Numerous, numerous stories about not only his botched handling of our coronavirus uh, response in terms of nursing home deaths not being reported and being covered up, but also him repeatedly harassing AIDS and just one woman at a wedding who doesn't even work for him. And these have led to calls for him to resign from some people, but they've also, you know, in certain corners of the internet, you can find people who ref- do not want Andrew Cuomo held accountable for anything, um, for a variety of stated reasons um, that include, like, the idea that somehow a Republican would become governor of New York and this would interfere with Donald Trump being prosecuted, to also this sense that what is happening to him is the same thing that happened to Al Franken a couple of years ago, which apparently they think was bad too. It's striking just how little you have to do as a politician in the United States to earn a fandom that will defend your every action, no matter how wrong the bar for that is shockingly low. Yes. Well, it's shockingly low because the grand majority of people um, either so, you know, you've got people who interact with politics as an occasional thing. Like, not everybody has the kind of broken brain that the three of us do. Correct. <laughs> so there's that. And, you know, the great majority of people interact with politics when it's time to vote, maybe occasionally get involved with a candidate who's a, a personal acquaintance or something like that. Um, but, for example, one thing that I should mention is that I would imagine that to a lot of people, unless they happen to live in Georgia and were waiting for those $2,000 checks, you know, the, the American Recovery Plan or project or whatever the heck it's called will be welcome news. And I mean, to some degree, it is. It, there is a bunch of good stuff in there, even if it's not what it should have been, right? Um, right. So you've got them. And then you've got the weird celebrity like uh, stance. Uh, who go to bat for politicians for literally anything. And it's those sec- the, the first group of people I'm not too worried about because I think you can actually talk to them as you would, you know, a normal person. But the second group of people are the one that are the ones that worry me because they do have the information. They do know what's happening. They just, for whatever reason, in many cases, I honestly am beginning to think it's a uh, a refusal to give up the monarchistic impulse um, just will not accept that your favorite person will do bad things too. And the weird part about it is how many times even they will say, you know, he's not somebody I personally like and I wouldn't have him over for dinner or whatever, but you know, he quote unquote got things done. Yeah. Or they say the what's all, what's the, what's alternative? the yeah, 
And and with Andrew Cuomo, of course, got things done. I mean, he did, if you mean killed a bunch of old people and harassed a bunch of women. And apparently it's it's a problem now to point that out um, because like because like Republicans aren't getting held accountable. Like, do you expect the Republican electorate to hold them accountable? The party runs on that. Right. That that was the other theme of these Andrew Cuomo defenses, this I- idea that we'll hold him accountable once, you know, X, Y and Z Republican politicians are kicked out of office, which right. if you want to be the better party, you have to actually be better. That's insane. You have to clear that low bar. But setting that aside, I, I do think part of it is also just a lot more people just blindly follow the things on TV than I would have expected. I, I like TV is the reason Andrew Cuomo has his popularity. These uh, daily briefings on the COVID crisis here in New York state earned him, you know, fawning admiration from no small amount of democratic voters. Um, The fact that he was doing those briefings because we were the state with the, you know, worst case total at the time goes unmentioned Conveniently forgotten. I'm sure it's all over the book. Now, we did not mean this episode to uh, go in on Andrew Cuomo. Uh, We should get back to sort of the minimum wage debate and and what Congress has passed, which you mentioned, Noah, there is, you know, a significant amount in this bill beyond uh, the lack of a minimum wage. There are $1,400 checks, not 2000 And to fewer people. Yes, a lower income cap for those checks than the previous stimulus checks that have been sent out. There's a big expansion for one year only of uh, child benefits, continuation of um, expanded unemployment benefits. And these are all good things in the abstract, even if, like, like you said, the sum total isn't quite what it could have been. There's something to be said here about just the the nature of the Senate, which really does a lot to limit popular power in this country because it insulates senators, I should say, from the consequences of the way they vote. Because like Kristen Cinema, like you mentioned, isn't up for re-election until 2024, by which point, you know, that's dozens of news cycles away. There will be countless other scandals on people's minds before they get to vote on whether she should keep her her job. And so in this way, beyond just the fact that the Senate includes, you know, two members from every state, which distorts uh, power in that way, there's little com- little that voters can do about this state of things. And in the case of the Senate, uh, speaking of giving up the monarchistic impulse, you know, the Senate was intentionally designed as a counterpart to the um, without like completely nerding out about legislative bodies on punching out. <clears throat> Welcome back to lawmaking out. But it was explicitly designed as a counterpart to the House of Lords, whose whole job was to stamp out anything that was remotely populist, not that they would have known or used the term. So in a way, I mean, this is, it's not a bug, it's a feature. This is working as designed. It's mm-hmm. supposed to take whatever aggressive proposal a House of Representatives sends up and go, well, let's all cool our jets and calm down and and take this one thing at a time and have all of these people debate about it and then have them vote against it because it's something that would actually help the non-rich. So 
it it is supposed to work that way and it's meant to be difficult to modify so that it it's just this massive little uh roadblock you know standing in the way of anything progressive what a cool country we have <laughs> um i i do think it's worth sort of delving into these details um and and you did a good job on your own just because i think that like the structures of this country are one of, if not the biggest barriers to the changes that we want to see happen, right? You know, it's not that this country is a center-right country that is so often talked about. It's the nature of our institutions that, you know, the, the Senate, just as an example, is the average state is more conservative than the country as a whole, just because of how the population is skewed towards um, larger states that tend to be democratic, but the Senate giving equal representation means that smaller, more Republican states, more rural states, you know, are given more power than their population would uh, afford them normally. So if we aren't doing something about those structures, it's going to be hard to pass the sorts of things that we want passed. Then you get people who are, especially in the Democratic Party, who are so obsessed with norms and tradition and the rules that they let that get in the way of actual reform and just being good at your job and effective because they're so obsessed with the norms. That's exactly what happened with this minimum wage stuff. And it'll keep happening. It's why they're not going to pack the, uh, the Supreme Court, because that would actually lead to change of any kind. And if nothing else, if the Republicans can be accused of anything, if, if trying to take back and remove rights and progress that we've made in the past 50 years, the Democrats are not necessarily actively trying to do that, but they're trying to ensure that nothing changes. Right. Because what's going to happen here, to take your example, Ryan, you were talking once again about Senator Cinema. We've got the, the problem here is that, sure, she's not up for re-election until 2024, but there's midterms in 2022. And if people still remember that she didn't raise the minimum wage, and that can be effectively used against her, uh, or used against the Democratic Party, I guess I should say, chances are pretty good that you're going to see a backlash against Democratic representatives, congresspeople and senators, who may or may not have voted that way, but they're going to get tarred with that brush. And the end result of that it's going to be another 2010. It's going to happen again. And a party that never had any interest in helping working people will have exploited that extremely cynically. And it would be one thing if on the other end of that, you could get people to say, well, then maybe it was a tactical miscalculation to theatrically throw a thumbs down on the Senate floor while you know looking like the image of a person who doesn't care about these things. But that aside... What's going to happen is that they'll go, well, no, this is why we need to listen to red state Democrats. This is why we need to listen to senators who hung on to their seats. This is why we need to listen to the most conservative part of the party. And this cycle just keeps happening. And what you have is a party that is allowed to lurch the country as far right as it wants and a party that is continually playing catch up with them. This is not a game of political tug of war anymore because one team is not pulling on their end at this point. Yeah. Um, ju just to take one small step back before we end this segment, I, I do want to talk about um, the filibuster, which we haven't really discussed yet, which in its current interpretation, and this is 
fairly recent. It wasn't like this until like 1995. The filibuster means that legislation requires 60 votes to pass the Senate. No good legislation requires 60 votes to pass the Senate. Right. This is a requirement that, you know, is fairly new and that no other state or even foreign country has for just regular legislation. You can't like a supermajority requirement is wholly unique and nobody has thought to copy it because of situations like this. It it gets in the way of actually doing anything. So the process Democrats have been operating through is something called reconciliation, which has these arcane limits on how and when it can be used. I think like only three times a year. And there, there are specific things that can and cannot be done through reconciliation and you know what those things are can be changed if senate rules say so senate rules you only need a majority to change them um but nevertheless this complicated process has resulted in a situation where somebody who isn't elected the senate parliamentarian is able to say no minimum wage increases out of bounds as part of this bill and there's a purpose to the obfuscation of like what actually is happening in the Senate because it prevents people from having like a clear view of who is doing what. You know, if Senate power is diffuse and both parties are required to do anything, then it's hard to point a finger at the party in power or the party out of power and say who exactly is responsible for nothing getting done. Well, and and I'll even bring it full circle. We were talking about Andrew Cuomo, and for a very long time, uh, criticism of New York politics has been that it's conducted by three people in a room. The majority leader of the Senate, whichever party that person belongs to, the the Speaker of the State Assembly, and the Governor. And that's how Andrew Cuomo, when it looked like the Democrats might finally start moving progressive legislation through the Senate and Assembly – created, you know, and supported the independent democratic conference to stop all of that from happening. Like we live in a state that is sort of the, uh, where I'm going with this it is sort of like the experimental station for doing that at the federal level. <laughs> like New York has a lot of these things built into the way that the state works. And I don't think it's a surprise that New Yorkers ideas and beliefs and, and all of that about their state politics are very similar to kind of like Americans' general beliefs about capital P American politics. There's a reason for that, and it's because the state, in many ways, has exactly the same minoritarian and anti-democratic impulses, that, and that's small d democratic uh, impulses, that the United States as a whole does. Like we, we can't forget that this is a country that was founded as a slaveholding republic that needed a very small number of men who were very angry about taxes to have all the power. Yeah, and I I think that's as good a concluding point for this segment as we're going to come to. Um, After this break, we're going to talk about things that, frankly, I think are more interesting, uh, namely an ongoing union fight at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama, and some legislation that, if it passes the Senate, would do a lot for those who want a union in their workplace. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still I, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Now, Noah, you'd mentioned in our first segment when we were talking about the uh, what's been happening in Congress that for, for some people, perhaps even many people in America, politics is something that exists every four years and or maybe when they catch a glimpse of CNN on TV. It's not something that they're actively thinking about between election days. But here on Punching Out, we've always taken the stance that, you know, politics happens all the time and it happens in the workplace. And one place politics is happening right now is in Alabama, where an Amazon uh, warehouse is in the midst of a vote on whether or not the workers there will unionize. Um, Workers have until March 29th to vote on whether they will join the uh, retail, wholesale, and department store union. And what has happened in the buildup to this election is Amazon, the world's biggest company right now, has taken out all the stops in an effort to stop this from happening. Uh, Noah, can you briefly explain why Amazon would be so invested in that? Uh, well, we, we've actually, this is not the first time that we've brought up Amazon and labor activism on this show. And in no, fact, we've it done isn't. it a lot. Um, and uh, if I were to sum up Amazon's general feelings on labor activism at Amazon, um, I would say they think it's bad and they don't like it. So over the last two to three years, actually probably even a little bit longer, you started to see organizing efforts because when you're the biggest company in the world and you treat your workers as badly as Amazon does, which it does every every month, I, I think, goes by and you're seeing another story about Amazon workers can't go to the bathroom because it dings them on points. Amazon workers are getting replaced uh, with robots. But then it turns out the robots actually just tell them what to do. Uh, Amazon workers are being paid horrendously or being injured on the job and not being offered health care, whatever. One of the most, especially now that the pandemic made for many people being able to get things shipped to them, a vital necessity in some cases. You know, they, they were in many ways one of the backbones of the United States continuing to chug along. And they were being treated as badly as ever. But over the past three or four years, you've seen labor activism at Amazon warehouses. And Amazon's response to this has been to hire union-busting consultants, whom we've talked about, the worst people in the world, um, who have done all sorts of things. Uh, They fired workers who tried to organize, including the one that I keep forgetting how this went down, but they they fired him and either immediately before or immediately after called him, what was it, inarticulate and not smart or something yes. like that? Yes, the, a worker who was you know complaining about conditions during the early phase of the pandemic at a warehouse, I believe, on Staten Island in New York City. They fired him and then disparaged him on his way out the door as their um, flimsy case for why his firing was not with his organization. Hold um, on. So you mean companies might lie about why they fire workers when they retali- when they're retaliating for labor activism? Put a pin in that, why don't you? Um <laughs> we'll do. But they've done this everywhere. In Minneapolis, we talked before about how they explicitly sought to hire uh Somali refugees and immigrants. And then after 
uh, they started using things like, you know, the shuttle bus that was provided, or they started talking to each other. Their working conditions immediately cratered as Amazon did everything possible to retain control. If this Alabama warehouse unionizes, which it would be uh, not the culmination, obviously, but it would be a huge step forward for Amazon workers because I think this would be a particularly big domino to fall. If you can organize an Amazon warehouse, a company where Jeff Bezos a couple months ago was personally delivering a package in India so that he could get his nice photo op while Amazon was trying to stop labor activism in India from even reaching this point. And when workers in France and in Germany, Amazon workers, have uh, gone on strike and demanded better conditions, the fact that an Amazon warehouse could be unionized in Alabama, in the United States, in the year of our Lord 2021, would be a huge defeat to the company. It would be the you know the Diego Salcedo moment, the, the drowning of the Spaniard, and they cannot allow this to happen. If it does, I mean, they will still pull out all the stops on every other drive. But if this one wins, they're going to find it a lot harder and they're going to have to spend a lot more energy and money combating the other ones. And that would put a dent in Jeff Bezos as like the half that he got in the divorce settlement or whatever. And he can't have that. No, you can't. I mean, he has to spend that on his alive girl. How is he ever going to uh, beat Elon Musk as the richest person if he has to suffer unionized workers? That's right. That's right. Glad somebody finally said it. I do want to talk a bit in detail about some of the efforts they've gone to in this instance. Headline and Vice from February 24th, Amazon sends vote no instructions to unionizing employees, tells them to use new mailbox. And that new mailbox is something they installed like in the middle of their head headquarters there, presumably, and this is what workers are assuming, so that they could keep tabs on the workers coming and going from it when they're dropping off their ballots. Um, previously, Amazon had fought to oppose a mail-in election um, for reasons that we can get into. Uh, Noah, what were you going to say? No, exactly that, that they were, they were told that they had to provide a mailbox. <laughs> yes. And... This article helpfully lays out reasons why Amazon would be opposed to a mail-in election, apart from the obvious reasons why people who rely on low turnout oppose mail-in elections. Um, Quote from the article, employers seeking to defeat union drives typically favor in-person voting because companies must stop holding education meetings once an election begins, but unions can keep engaging with workers until voting finishes. Amazon's mail-in election will last seven weeks. So, you know, that's seven weeks in which the union, unlike the company, can really talk to people in person about what's going on and why you should vote for this union. Um, Amazon obviously has taken, uh, you know, different tactics now with these mailers. Um, There's pictures in the article. It's a very glossy thing. You know, look for your ballot. Uh, Vote no is step two of their six-step process. And and if I remember correctly, uh, standing at the mailbox waiting for you to drop in your ballot is some dude who will also talk to you about how bad unions are. Like, I, I think they, they took a picture of the mailbox, and I remember there being some guy there who's supposedly just there to make sure all the votes get counted, because that's what normal people say when they believe in democracy. 
Right. It's it's the old uh, election imitation intimidation strategy. You know, we've we've seen this in our democratic elections, and it's no stranger to the tactics of companies facing union elections. Um, we we talked a lot about processes and structures in our first segment, and I think it's worth also talking about the processes of like an NLRB election in this segment, because as we said in the first segment, processes are how things get done. Um, and the way they are shaped shapes the outcomes. I, like some part of me feels that a lot of the anti voter rights legislations that are being sh- shoved through um, state legislatures right now. Um, they're just super jealous of what companies are legally allowed to do and even illegally doing uh, as far as anti-unionization efforts. That I think is spot on. It's uh, it, We've talked before on this show about the idea that you know corporations, especially big corporations, essentially function like the real government of the country. Um, I, I do like that companies are sort of chafing at the idea that in the um, once the vote begins, they're not allowed to um, hold education meetings is yes. the uh, phrase, phrasing they like. Yet again, another perfect example of if you have to use the word, you don't actually mean it. But I love the idea that they're chafing at this because imagine if if only there were like a material explanation for why the union needs the government to step in and tell the company to back off for a bit. You know, if only there were a certain imbalance in power between these two institutions, one of which represents working people who have to pool together their resources in order to make their voices heard and get a first contract that is, you know, actually worth a damn. Um, Imagine if there was an imbalance between those people and the second or possibly first richest man in the world. The fact that a lot of people treat these two things as equal is legitimately why we can't have nice things. Because it is unbelievable to say, here's Jeff Bezos, who has so much money that he can pay cash for the Washington Post so that democracy doesn't die in darkness. And then on the other side, you've got a few thousand people who have to like essentially fundraise so that they can hire lawyers who like occasionally do good work and and put them together. And somehow this is going to be an even conflict. That's not how that works. Those people have been hit with anti-union propaganda the rest of their careers. If you're saying the mail-in election lasts seven weeks, these are probably the first seven weeks of their working life that they have not been hit with anti-union propaganda. To give an example of that propaganda, quoting from the article, Oh boy. The mailer also lists a set of misleading reasons for voting no, including a union cannot guarantee greater job security or better wages or benefits, and, quote, you pay for the union with dues they collect from your paycheck each month, which in Alabama is not true because that's a right-for-work state where unions are not allowed to collect dues if you don't want them to. But one of the other items on this mailer is if the union calls a strike, you don't get paid. It's just really funny to see like the lies, the like, yeah, the myths. And, and what's, what's frustrating about that? Cause they are lies. They are myths is the fact that they kind of work because we've had such an undercurrent of anti-unionization for the past 50, 60, 70 years. Um, it, like not since the, you know, long, long before any of us were even alive, 
was unionization a powerful thing. And with the rise of neoliberalism and trickle-down effects and everything like that, there's been such an emphasis that power and authority and our God-given rights are given to you from the elites. And this kind of thing works because there's so little good education about unionization and what working people are entitled to or and should be entitled to. Yeah. A lot of American workers, a lot of American people go through life with a conviction that I simply I, I, I understand where it comes from, but I really can't deal with it, which is that they just don't deserve anything good. Mm-hmm. Um, that even though you put however many hours a week you put into your job and you try to do it well and you, you know, you, you try to be a team player and be nice to your coworkers and all this stuff. And you try to be a good person in your regular life, whatever that means to you, that despite all of that, unless you're already rich, in which case the world has arguably already given you the nice things that you deserve, uh, unless you're already there. You don't deserve to have anything nice happen to you. You don't deserve to have money or healthcare or education. And it's this weird catch-22 where the only way that you show that you deserve these things is by already having them. You only deserve money if you already have money. You only deserve education if you're already the kind of person who can get into any school you want through whatever means necessary. You only deserve healthcare if you've already proven that you can afford, you know, those concierge services that hospitals have now. Because people, I think, do on some level believe that these are things that they want or need or deserve. But the moment that they try and express that, you find them couching it in every possible debilitator, right? They they diminish them. And to watch uh, an Amazon warehouse of all places fight against that in the deep south of all places, in the U.S. of all places, that's a very welcome beacon of light. And Amazon cannot deal with even that one uh, light being on. It can't happen. Because if it does, then there might be unionization efforts down the road. And before you know it, again, as we said at the beginning of this segment, Jeff Bezos might lose like a zero out of a decimal percentage of his wealth, his obscene, undeserved wealth. Yeah. And you, you talk about it being in the Deep South. And, you know, there have been big union fights in recent memory in the South. There have been, um, I believe, at a Volkswagen plant in Nashville a couple of years back. And unfortunately, the, these big fights have tended to be on the losing end for for unions and, and and even when and in the case of that Volkswagen fight, even when the company wanted it to happen, you want to talk about how much control corporations have over the American government. That corporation wanted the union because it fit with their company culture, and Tennessee stepped in to not allow it to happen. Yeah, which is to say that the South is, for a variety of historical and cultural reasons that we can't really get into in just the time allotted here. It's uphill battle territory for unions and for workers uh, because of things like right to work laws, which prevent unions from uh, demanding dues from their members because of, you know, just a number of other laws that make it harder for them to win these sorts of fights. To shift gears a little, there's a, another story that's crossed our radar in just the past week now. Um Originally of a Trader Joe's employee who was fired because of an email he sent to the CEO regarding the company's uh, policies as regards uh, coronavirus. 
and has since turned into a story about Trader Joe's rehiring that worker. I'm going to quote from the Daily Beast. Uh, on Wednesday evening, the popular grocery chain offered to reinstate Ben Bonama, an employee at one of the grocery chain's New York stores, who wrote a letter to CEO Dan Bain admonishing the company for not taking adequate safety measures to keep workers safe from COVID-19. His initial firing went viral on social media and received national news attention. And this is a, a rare positive story of a worker who was unjustly fired, you know, getting his job back. But one of the reasons he got this job back is because even given America's uh, flimsy labor laws, this firing was almost definitely illegal. It was, yeah, it was wildly wrongful. The uh, National Labor Relations Act 1935, uh, as I, I touched on a bit earlier, you know, it makes it illegal for employees to be fired for organizing or for, you know, speaking out on working conditions in this way. And nevertheless, that, doesn't prevent companies from Trader Joe's and Amazon, as we talked about, you know, violating that all the time. But ostensibly, the law is there to prevent it from happening. And and I mentioned that in relation with the uh, the Amazon unionization fight to really talk about our existing s- slate of labor laws and you know what they allow and don't allow unions to do. And so that we can talk a bit about what is on the horizon as it comes to labor laws. Uh, Noah, would you mind sort of introducing a bit the PRO Act and what that would do? Uh, the PRO Act is, uh, frankly, one of the biggest pieces of, of labor legislation that is moving through Congress in the last decade since the abortive attempts at the EFCA, the Employee Free Choice Act, back in 2008-2009. Um, so the deal with it is basically it, it, it bakes into the law a uh, stronger protections for employees trying to organize. It forbids companies from uh, and states and so on from placing employees into employment categories that take away the right to unionize, which is a direct shot at Proposition 22 in California. So it, it makes it possible to unionize with freelancers, with uh, if your company classifies you as an independent contractor, that doesn't take away your right to organize and unionize, uh, all that sort of thing. So it, it creates that. It enshrines that right in law as a positive right. Um, mm-hmm. It makes it so that well, the, the big thing about it is that if a company is found to be interfering with a union drive in basically any way, it forces them to come to the negotiating table with an arbitrator, with the union, and uh, hash it out, basically, with the unionization drive. So if a company is found to be interfering with organizing or unionizing activity, there's an actual concrete punishment that isn't just a, a deadly squat fine. Mm-hmm. There, There's an actual process that they would have to go through where they're told, well, you messed up, and now, uh, as a punishment, you have to sit there while the union tells you what they want. Yeah. Uh, you, you talked about interference with uh, union drives. Um, it's mentioned in this article I'm reading in Salon by Tom Conway about the PRO Act that this will mean an end to the mandatory town hall meetings that employers regularly use to disparage organized labor and hector workers into voting against unions. Those education meetings that Amazon is holding would absolutely fall under that category. Those are gone if the PRO Act were to pass. 
just to give one small example out of many ways in which the PRO Act would make this an easier fight for unions to wage. Again, probably since the original National Labor Relations Act, it would be the biggest piece of labor legislation in United States history. Because, I mean, I've said before on this show that I do think the one fatal weakness of the original Wagner Act is that if you enshrine one process for how a workplace unionizes, these corporations specialize at finding ways to screw with the same process, at finding new and interesting ways to mess with their workers. But if there's an actual punishment for doing that, and there's a positive right to organize, then that actually substantially weakens that ability to muck with the the one way that workers have to collectivize. And that is, I mean, ultimately what, what I come out thinking is like, the fact that it wasn't in the original bill uh, is kind of a problem. Um, so it's 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 good to see that we're almost a century in <laughs> finally fixing that. Yeah, it's this is a really cool act, and it's it's impressive that it's gotten as far as to being written as an actual bill in front of Congress instead of just a. Wouldn't it be really cool if we had this thing? Um, like I feel so many other things in in our reality or reality as leftists is, is, you know, would be cool if we had this, but not enough people agree with us. It would be a very powerful tool to help level that playing field between corporations and what they can do and everybody else who don't have the resources to hire uh, fleets of McKenzie consultants to basically keep people impoverished. Just to lay out a bit more of what the PRO Act does in terms of, you know, uh, specifics, um, reading from the Salon article, quote, the PRO Act, backed by President Biden and pro-worker majorities in the House and the Senate, will impose stiff financial penalties on companies that retaliate against organizers and require the National Labor Relations Board to fast track legal proceedings for workers suspended or fired for union activism. It also empowers workers to file their own civil lawsuits against employers that violate their labor rights. The legislation will bar employers from permanently replacing workers during labor disputes, eliminating a threat that companies often use to thwart organizing campaigns. And and that's really huge because if companies can't bring in scabs and strike breakers in that way, then so much of the risk of a strike goes away. It becomes you know, able to, it becomes possible for strikers to actually impose damage on the company for drawing out these uh, battles, as opposed to that being just a one-way street. Mm-hmm. This really defangs a lot of the weapons that companies have uh, added to their arsenal for dealing with unionization efforts and strikes and the things that come after unions are already present. Right. Yeah, it's it it really is such an a good move cuz I remember when we first started doing this show, we spent a lot of time laying out why unions were good in the first place. So, to have moved that far from, you know, this is why unions are actually good to this is how we can actually support unionization in the big picture. That's really cool. I'm not going to lie. And I'm not 
I'm not going to be happy about many things from now until the end of time, probably. Uh, but this is really rad and uh, exciting. And things have changed. Things have actually changed in the country for the better, if nothing else, by having a national conversation around this. And, and not just and, us. Yeah, for sure. And if uh, somehow all of the sustained dunking we did on Democrats earlier did not drive you away, it should be noted that another person who, that you know, uh, Ryan, you mentioned that Biden has backed the PRO Act, but Biden actually did, uh, he, he cut essentially a promo saying that, um, yeah. you know, unions aren't the devil. And uh, if you want to join one, that's a good thing. And uh, you should be allowed to by your workplace. And, you know, I could honestly uh, make fun of the fact that it was still kind of a little bit weak in sort of the tone that it took towards corporate retaliation and so on. But frankly, even people that I actually trust to talk about labor history have said that it, it's a bigger deal than most recent presidents have done when it comes to labor policy. And I think I can believe that because that bar is also <laughs> so incredibly low. If there is one thing that this administration seems to be signaling, it is at least somewhat willing to to back workers on. It is in terms of sort of their labor rights. And if this mm-hmm. PRO Act gets passed and we do see enforcement of it, then that would at least be one good thing. Yeah. Well, w- one thing this this Biden video that you're talking about, um, which you know, it's very rare for presidents to comment on specific labor fights. Biden did not mention Amazon by name in this video, if I recall, but he did talk specifically about workers in Alabama. You know, making it clear what he was referring to. You know, and and that's more than his Democratic predecessor, Obama, did. You know, uh, Obama had famously mentioned on the campaign trail in 2008 that if there was a picket line, you know, he'd get his walking shoes and be out there and was never to be found on a picket line during the course of his administration. So, well, he'd only been in office eight years. He needed more time. Couldn't find the right shoes. (laughs) Congress wouldn't let him fund them. (laughs) Now, I, I, I guess to an extent we're coming full circle in this episode because, you know, we've said all these nice things about the PRO Act, and now the question is, can this get through the Senate? You know, will this get through the Senate? Uh, I mentioned in the first segment the reconciliation process that legislation is forced to go through in order to pass unless you have 60 votes, which, you know, this PRO Act is not going to find 10 Republican senators to vote for it in, in any conceivable reality. Uh, 60 votes in this economy? Right. So Democrats have uh, sort of limited opportunities to use reconciliation to pass the things they want. And there is a lot on their agenda. There is also voting rights legislation that you know they view as necessary if they're going to continue to be able to win elections in this country effectively. But there's also, you know, climate change and gun control and any number of things that they could focus on. It's a question of whether, as with the Obama administration, they will choose to focus on things other than labor again. And I don't really have a good sense of what they will decide on that front. Um, you know, this uh, Pro Act 
was introduced into Congress last month. Um, obviously, the debate since then has focused on the stimulus bill and whether minimum wage would be a part of that. Will Democrats use this short time that they have power to actually boost unions for perhaps the first time since LBJ? That's the question. I'm not overly optimistic, but it, you know what? Let's say it. Yeah, let's, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. Let's do it. It would it would be great if they did. I also find myself on the pessimistic side of this because uh, we're coming to the end of the show here. But um, one one of the things that we didn't really get to talk about with uh, Ben Bonema, Trader Joe's, is that you know he was writing to ask for common sense protection for himself and other Trader Joe's employees. He all, that's literally all he wanted. He wanted them to require masks and to have better air air filtration. And I've been working for the past seven, eight months. Um, you know, we never shut down, not for a day, not even when the we were in a red zone, not even when cases were spiking, not not for one hour did we stop. And I am very worried that the swath of people that don't care about essential workers, about people who've been at work this whole time. The swath of people is so politically varied and that that's been made obvious that I think the Democrats will have plenty of cover if they decide uh, that they're going to punt this one. But on the other hand, I also think that there are a lot of people within the Democratic coalition who kind of wish that the left and unions and so on would just kind of F off and do their own thing. And passing the PRO Act would be a great way to sort of do that. It would get a lot of people off your back because now they can have those union drives at their workplaces instead of demanding that everything go through Congress. Labor rights would, if activated again, could allow uh, a lot of unions to do end runs around a milk toast Democratic Party. And that would feed back into the party uh, in a much more subtle way than the conflict you have right right now, where progressive legislation always gets stuck by the same kind of five people who then enjoy an incredible level of of cover for making terrible decisions that hurt millions. Well, unions, um, this is no secret, have been among the Democratic Party's biggest backers for the past you know sixty years or so, and. For Dem- if Democrats choose again to do not much for them, you know there comes a point where you know unions might feel like they aren't getting enough out of that relationship. It hasn't happened yet, but you know in theory, union leadership could change their minds about how things are going. I, I guess, and-, and this wasn't really intentional when we started this episode, but we've backed into. A central theme here in the stories we've discussed and how we've discussed them, which is the way in which our country's big capital P processes affect how we treat our essential workers and the people sort of who make the country run, who maybe feel like politics is above their heads, whether it's minimum wage workers at McDonald's or warehouse workers for Amazon, they, whether they feel so or not, are impacted by the structures and the processes that our country puts into place for how we pass laws and for how for how labor fights are conducted. See, that's weird. I thought the theme you were going to say is that there are so many bars that are so low <laughs> uh, and take 
almost no effort to clear. And yet here we are. Yeah, no, it's, we all know people, I think at our workplaces that don't engage with, as you were saying, the capital P processes of politics on a daily basis. And honestly, good for them because look what it's turned us into. But, um, <laughs> but when you talk to them, right, they, they think this is above their heads. They don't think that they can affect any change. And it's understandable that they feel that way because the country has structured itself to deny them that power, to take away their ability to affect any changes that would uh, show up in their daily lives. And what I think pieces of legislation like the PRO Act, having a president signal that he's willing to be supportive of part of me of unionization, and uh, maybe a more active labor movement that can hold uh, Democrats accountable for not doing enough for working people. If if you have those factors, then I think what you what you hopefully see at the end is that even if they don't necessarily engage with the process, they at least understand that they as people, as workers, have power. And that if they come together to use that power, they can make things happen and they can stop bad things from happening. And that sounds pretty corny, but that is the basis. If if anything is going to get better, it is going to be on that basis. It will not be from the Senate or from Congress, or it's sure as hell won't be from the Supreme Court uh, or the White House. It's going to be from working people coming together and demanding what they deserve. Not what we're not what the state is willing to give them, what they deserve. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. Um, for, for so long in this country, we've had sort of a negative cycle of these structures getting in the way of change happening and thus people feeling like change isn't possible through politics and thus tuning out, which only makes it more inevitable that change will not happen through politics. And if something like the PRO Act is able to pass and you know if people are able to see real benefits from the political process, maybe that cycle reverses itself and it becomes a positive cycle, something that builds energy towards the changes that we want to see in society. We can only hope. For this week, I'm Ryan. I was Noah. And I'm Lou. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.